electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Live from the NASDAQ market site in the heart of New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. Here's what's on tap tonight. A Friday bombshell, Sam Altman fired as the CEO of OpenAI, the board losing confidence in his ability to continue leading the company. We'll have the latest, plus a ripple effect for Microsoft and the big AI players. Also, it's the night of a thousand charts from the dollar to regional banks to retail and more. What this week's outsized moves say about the state of the market and where these charts might be heading next. And later, wearing the crown, Netflix quietly having quite a memorable month. The stock is up 30% in the last 30 days. What's behind this royal revival? We'll debate that. I'm Melissa Lee coming to you live from Studio B at the Nasdaq on the desk tonight. Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Bono and Eisen, and Dan Nathan. We're going to get into this week's monster market moves in just a few minutes, but we've got to start off with a developing story on OpenAI. The company's board ousting CEO Sam Altman late in the day, saying he was not quote-unquote, consistently candid in his communications with them. Shares of Microsoft, OpenAI's biggest investor, dropping on the news. Let's get to Steve Kovac for the latest and what we know at this hour. Steve. Hey there, Mel. Yeah, this is the big surprise in Silicon Valley today. Sam Altman, the face of the generative AI boom and CEO of OpenAI, he's out of the company. OpenAI board saying in a statement, quote, Mr. Altman's departure follows a deliberative review process by the board, which concluded that he was not consistently candid in his communications with the board, hindering its ability to exercise its responsibilities, adding they no longer had confidence in his ability to run the company. Now, Mira Marathi, the OpenAI chief technology officer, she was named interim CEO. Altman just putting out a tweet, though, on X saying, I loved my time at OpenAI. It was transformative for me personally and hopefully the world a little bit. Most of all, I loved working with such talented people, end quote, adding he'd share more later and posting a salute emoji. This also has huge implications for Microsoft, as you said, which has invested billions in OpenAI for exclusive first access to some of its technology, not to mention running its services on Azure Cloud. For now, Microsoft's saying it plans to continue its partnership with OpenAI. Spokesperson telling me, quote, we have a long-term partnership with OpenAI and Microsoft remains committed to Mira and their team as we bring this next era of AI to our customers, end quote. Shares of Microsoft took a dip lower, though, on the news, down better than 1.5% at the close. Now, this is a real shocker, guys. Altman was speaking at the APEC event just last night. He was the keynote speaker and was part of the dinner with China's President Xi, along with other tech CEOs like Apple CEO Tim Cook. Now, the big question is whether or not this weakens OpenAI and therefore Microsoft's head start over Google and others in generative AI. Google just had to delay its update called Gemini that would compete with a better version of the latest version of ChatGPT, that is. And another startup to watch, Anthropic, whose technology is largely on par and similar to OpenAI's and now has the backing of billions from Amazon. Melissa? 
Steve, thanks. Keep us posted on development. Steve Kovac back at headquarters. A lot of questions still regarding exactly why he was fired, what he was not uh, candid about in terms of communications. Was it uh, the business? Was it something else? If it was the business, then, of course, that has an implication in terms of valuation of the company, Dan. So we still don't know a lot. Yeah, listen, this is seismic. And when you think about that Microsoft investment of $10 billion, that happened in January of this past year. I think the valuation was just under $30 billion. Money was raised in this name at $80 billion, right? And so when you think about a guy like Sam Altman, to many of our viewers who are maybe you know, very familiar with a lot of publicly traded CEOs that we talk about all the time, I mean, this guy is like the golden child in the, in the private markets over the last 15 years in Silicon Valley. So when you think about the competition with Google, with Anthropic, with a whole host of other companies, you know, for talent, I mean, Sam Altman, who used to run Y Combinator, was very important in that. So when you think about the implications for Microsoft or just the landscape as it relates to generative AI, right? now. It's talent, it's capital, it's a whole host of other things. And it's also execution and bringing products out. So to me, listen, Microsoft, should it be down on this? I don't know. Like where they invest in this company, what they've secured as far as like, you know, what uh, OpenAI has to do with um, Azure and, and, and the like here. It's a good deal for them. I mean, trust me, but like this thing could get cut in half, which actually has happened in many of large publicly traded companies or private companies over the last few years. And it really still wouldn't be a problem for Microsoft. We were just talking about this before the show started. Where is Microsoft at the time of the investment? $242. Yep. And where is it now? 369 and change. Look, so down 2% is not much, but still, you, you got to wonder. I mean, if it's going to knock the valuation of OpenAI, it's got to knock some of that, whatever yeah, you want to call well, it, that, that AI pixie dust, AI fluff, AI and, premium. Totally. And if you think about how, how viral ChatGPT was and the impact on other companies' valuations, right. I mean, it, it was a moment in time we'll never forget. And there's no question significant value is accreted to Microsoft and Microsoft you know, effectively at all time highs here. So um, I don't think it dethrones them. I don't think, you know, the, the reality is that the competitive landscape is is closing in fast. And we see this in other places, too. It's probably why Dan thinks NVIDIA is at some point absurdly priced, too. Um, but this is what the market is grappling with right now. I mean, I think it's hard to spin a CEO ouster as a positive, so I'm going to stop short of trying to do that. With that said, there's very little information here. I don't know exactly what he wasn't candid about. Are we saying that he's lying? Was the communication just not up to par with what the board wanted? Either way, I'm going to win until I see the succession plan. With that said, I do think the stock price in Microsoft, or the price action, rather, that you're, that you're seeing post-news is indicative of uh, the premium that has been assigned to AI, and that goes for Microsoft and everyone else. So um, I, I'm going to kind of sit on my hands and wait and see before getting involved in Microsoft's stocks. I'm long it. But with that said, I do expect them to continue to come up with a succession plan and be able to capitalize on generative AI. At minimum, though, Guy, what we know is that he is gone. At minimum, Guy, what we know is that he was a tremendous talent and he was a great ambassador in terms of what the power of AI will be in future generations. And he is gone from OpenAI and from the company that Microsoft invested in. So what what does that mean? It's more to the story is what it means, I think. And, you know, it's, it's rather abrupt. I mean, Steve mentioned that he was speaking, obviously, you know, in his role, in his capacity last night. And then today this happened. So the abruptness is concerning, number one. Number two, I guess to a certain extent, we'll have a guest on to speak to this. There's clearly some key man risks associated with this. So we'll see. Microsoft, look, we all know it's a $2.7 trillion company. So even if you're, you know, talking about reducing open AI down to nothing in terms of valuation. It doesn't move the needle, but it clearly moves the needle in terms of market sentiment. So if you put up a Microsoft chart, you will see that in December of 2021, at the time the stock made an all-time high, 345, it sold off. 
in July of this year, traded right back to 345. We sold off down to 310, and now here we are. So that past resistance should become support. So given the news and given what we're probably going to hear over the weekend, I don't think that 345 is a pipe dream, especially given the fact that Microsoft has gone from 310 to 375 in the blink of an eye over the last week and a half or two. Do you think we're going to look back at this moment, Dan, and and think that was a moment a lot of the air came out of the AI bubble? It could be. I mean, like, think about this. I mean, as Sam Altman, assuming that there was no impropriety or anything like that, he's probably going to start another AI company, right? right? And, and so it just creates more of a competitive sort of nature. There's going to be capital that flows to him. I think it's more important that you think about the money that was attracted to this space, both publicly and privately, and you use the term pixie dust. I mean, we already went through this period with, you know, a whole host of other asset classes, crypto to be one of them, F- FTX a year ago. You think about the lack of due diligence that was done chasing some of these big, big ideas that have the potential, obviously, to be very transformative. But when you see valuations in private markets, okay, skip up tens of billions of dollars in a matter of months, there's no real due diligence that's being done here. So when you think about this, I think we will easily look back. Yeah, yeah, we'll easily look back and say this was a bubble. You know what I mean? Like, could it continue to inflate a little bit? But again, if you just think about the broadening out of competition for talent, for capital, for resources, that's probably what happens from here on. But the moral of that story in terms of the analogy to Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX is that what has Bitcoin done since then? It's one of the best best performing asset classes this year. It's done very well. I mean, it's it's come out of that winter. I I also think you just have to look at the reality of, of, you know, apparently 90% of Fortune 500 companies are are using some type of tools on OpenAI. I mean, on ChatGPT and building off those platforms. So, I mean, the head start, there's no question about it. And and, uh, I don't know that this does anything to change the addressable market and the demand around AI anywhere. I, I think it just levels the playing field more. All right. For more on Sam Altman's departure from OpenAI, let's bring in Alex Kantrowitz, uh, big technology founder and CNBC contributor. Alex, thanks for coming by. Um, what is your take on the news? What is the biggest implication here in your view? I think OpenAI was already a company that was going to be on the decline. And what I mean by that is that we're in a moment where everybody has access to the same technology that OpenAI rose to fame. The transformer model developed within Google was something that OpenAI used very successfully to create incredibly popular products like ChatGPT and Dolly. But now everybody's coming for them. You have Anthropic, founded by ex-OpenAI employees, that's been funded to the tune of billions by Google and Amazon. You have Elon Musk with his own model, though we'll, we'll see where that goes. And then you have Google that's in the middle of it's delayed but releasing its own more powerful, potentially more powerful model called Gemini coming at OpenAI. This is a moment where they were vulnerable. They needed to put their best team forward in order to compete. And now they've lost their quarterback. So it's an incredibly poor timing uh, moment for for OpenAI to have this happen to them. It's concerning for Microsoft, which put all of its eggs in the OpenAI basket. And we're going to see it's going to reshuffle the way that this AI battle has been playing out. So who gains from this if, if OpenAI is weakened? So Google gains, obviously, because they not only have that anthropic investment, but they have Gemini coming out. But I think the big winner is going to be Amazon. Amazon has been about bringing your own model and using it within the Amazon Web Services uh, uh, ecosystem. Now, Microsoft has taken down a peg. Microsoft, of course, is their main competitor for cloud services with Azure. So you now have Amazon in a strength position saying anybody can come to us. By the way, like the CEOs that we work with, they're still in their jobs. And I think that's going to put them in an even stronger position to take the lead in this battle. So clearly the argument is that this changes the competitive landscape. Um, to what extent do, do we think that Microsoft has had a moat or a head start? Or do you think that given the price action that we've overvalued that head start and that will come to, come to bear fruit going forward? 
They've had a tremendous head start. I mean, the last earnings report, they said they went from 11,000 uh, people on their open AI service to, sorry, yeah, from 11,000 to 18,000. A huge jump to get 7,000 enterprise, uh, enterprise clients to jump on in a quarter is unheard of. So they had that head start. But there's a natural path that all these companies take. They begin on OpenAI because it's easy and it has that head start and they have the APIs. Then they move to a model where anybody can, uh, where they can use any model. They can substitute OpenAI in with Anthropic and put whatever they want in and the product works the same so they can pick their best model. And then the bigger they get, they move open source, right? That's something like Facebook has been shipping with Llama 2 because they want the customizability. So OpenAI was going to be weak and, and now we're going to start to see this Darwinism within the AI worlds just start to accelerate. Your initial premise is that uh, OpenAI was already on the decline. Was the entire space on the decline already in terms of valuation? Did we see peak valuation? And does this, does this hasten uh, that decline? Well, the valuations have been wild. I mean, thinking about the way that the market has valued AI companies has been crazy, right? But I think that this shows that OpenAI on the decline shows the opposite, which shows that actually this space is on the rise because it's not just the OpenAI show anymore. You have very powerful companies, Google and Amazon getting in, and Anthropic is going to pose a serious challenge. So as opposed to saying OpenAI is declining, everybody's going to go down, it's more just a system of like, you built your products on commoditized software. Now everybody's using that and getting in the game. And so that's a sign of strength for AI. And now, I mean, these companies that were behind, they're going to be even further incentivized to push their foot to the gas pedal, seeing a moment of weakness in open AI. So I expect this field to only accelerate from here. Alex, thanks for coming by. Alex, thanks Kandrowitz. for having me. A guy. Yeah, I'm reading a t- tweet from Gene Munster. So, you know, and I'll re- I'm sorry, but Sam Altman out as open AI CEO. I'm shocked. He just hosted a great development day. Everybody loved it. More importantly, he has led the company to faster success than any other tech company. It doesn't feel that this decision is based on performance. There must be more to the story that you guys putting up now. So, you know, that's sort of what we said at the top. And I don't know what more to the story means, but I also know that, you know, we find ourselves in an environment when we get news like this, it's typically self-first, ask questions later, and we'll see what happens on Monday as more news comes out. Yeah, I mean, particularly in a space that has enjoyed huge valuations. I mean, we're going to talk about NVIDIA a little bit later on in the show. That's the next big earnings report to be released next week on the 21st. Do you think this changes at all the prism through which we evaluate AI-focused, AI-leveraged companies? I don't know. Well, first of all, I mean, we we don't know what this means to Microsoft. Um, And yet we have been able to interpolate the the market cap dynamics Mm -hmm. of what went on with the company. But um, I I don't again, I I think this is what Alex was also saying. I think uh, the 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 space right now looks more competitive than ever, looks certainly more integral than ever. And and success here for a handful of companies um, probably is, is critical. Let's turn out to the markets this week. The Nasdaq and S&P 500 up more than 2%. The Dow lagging the group, but still nicely higher. Digging deeper on the S&P, it is up 13 out of the last 15 sessions and up nearly 10% during this hot stretch with the markets experiencing a November to remember so far. Hmm. We asked the traders for the one chart that is top of mind for them. So Bonoin is picking 10-year Treasury yields. Why? 
Uh, listen, I think the macroeconomic story is really what's been driving performance over the last, you know, one to three months. Um, and you see that we've backed off from just north of 5% to just shy of 4.5%. And I think that's really pushing forward this narrative of actually finding this Goldilocks soft landing. And I think as you've seen yields retreat, you've seen technology, just speaking of AI and, tech and, and Microsoft and others, you've seen a rally in those names. And you've actually seen a flight of capital into some of the underperformers as well. And so I think this is really the tail that's wagging the dog. And that's squarely where I'm focused. Dan, one dog that is being wagged is <laughs> what you picked. Yeah, this is a Russell 2000. So this is a small cap. So if you think about all those macroeconomic factors that Bono speaks about, I mean, yes, fine. Yields have come in here. The dollars come in here a little bit. Um, you know, oils come in a whole heck of a lot. But the way that this small caps uh, stocks act to me is not particularly great. And when you think about, it, there's a lot of financials in there, and we know that the, you know a lot of these regional banks have come off the mat in the last couple of weeks, but up 10 percent, okay, off of a key key support level. We can back that chart out maybe um, to a five year or so. This thing is just not even getting going here, you know, despite what we've just seen in the S and P and the Nasdaq over the last you know two three weeks or something like that. So to me, this was a leading indicator late 2021 when the Fed started raising interest rates. It had just made a new all time high and then started to lead lower to the downside and the S&P followed. So I expect a retest of this one and I expect the S&P and the Nasdaq to probably follow suit. Guy, yours is the VIX. Why? Yeah, well, September, the VIX traded, I think, as low as 1280. We got up to 24 and here we are back below 14, you know, 13 and three quarters or so. And I would just submit, you know, a VIX as we get down to these low teens, you know, single, low single digits, uh, that is typically a place where the market starts to encounter some sort of difficulty as it continues to try to move the upside. So I would submit a VIX at these levels is not pricing in any of the sort of the headwinds or some of the risks that are out there um, that haven't gone away despite the fact that yields have come down. I think people think that yields are a salve for everything. But quite frankly, the problems that were around at 24 VIX, I still are here at 13 and a half. So the VIX to me is an important sell. Tim, what's yours? It's the dollar. And it, to me, the dollar also is always sniffing out central bank policy. It's sniffing out Fed policy. Um, really, the dollar peaked when I think the Fed peaked. You could go back to last October, but you could go even just to November 1. Um, the, the move in the dollar this week, week over week, is about 1.8%. Obviously, that prices in a few things. You had the Fed meeting. You had CPI. So you, you've taken some of the pressure off on rates. But I think ultimately, like, it's very important for risk assets. It's very important for the commodity complex. That's the one brain cell. But I think you think about multinationals, you think about earnings power, you think about demand. Um, I think, it, you know, the dollar's not going to crater here. Um, there's a lot of other factors at work, but we've been waiting for the dollar to weaken. I, I would argue the dollar's been in a 12-year bull market, um, so it's not going to change overnight. Uh, but this is important. Coming up, Chartmaster Carter Worth takes us on a journey through three key areas of the market to find out where they are heading next. He's got the technical tail of that tape next. But first, Netflix and Thrill, the streaming stock soaring more than 30% in the last month. Can anything stop this one? We'll debate that. More Fast Money right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. How about Captain Crunch's Crunchberries with breakfast? 
Whoa, well, Dad, we're on. Crunch Island. <gasps> it's Jean Foot. <laughs> and he stole our crunch. Quick, the zip line. He's getting away. Throw our last crunch berry. No. No one steals my crunch berries. I think you mean my crunch berries. Choose your own crunch venture with Captain Crunch. Welcome back to Fast Money. What a difference a month makes. Shares of Netflix had been starting to lose steam heading into its Q3 earnings report last month. The stock had fallen nearly 30 percent from its July highs through mid-October, but it has been on a tear since those earnings, nearly recouping all the losses in just a month. Is there any stopping the stock now? Tim, you flagged this remarkable move. It's it's 35 percent in 22 sessions since that earnings release, a release that showed probably upside to free cash flow generation this year. That's what separates them from the pack. I, I think you've also had a, a period where it's been a little bit mixed within the ranks of the other streamers. Um, obviously, Disney's had some strength here, too. Uh, Netflix from a... a profitability perspective is so far ahead, also positioning in terms of content and actually efficiency there. Uh, it's just really, it's back to, this was a relatively attractive valuation. It's not attractive. Um, and at this point, I, I think around these levels, which are, gets you right back to those highs before it actually had to sold off into earnings. I think you're cautious here. Cautious, but I'm, I'm not inclined to fight the trend here. Uh, it's had a remarkable move. And as you mentioned, it really is the best house. Now, we can argue whether or not the neighborhood is one that, that we find to be attractive, but they are head and shoulders above all other streamers. And I think Disney is probably second in class only because they have the parks that is able to support them. But that's essentially paying for, for, for streaming, so you're getting that business for free. But move, uh, you know, the, the move notwithstanding, I do think that, you know, 35% in less than a month does give you some pause. I'd be more inclined to sell some upside calls than, than get outright short. I'm going to channel my inner Karen Feinerman. Um, maybe it shouldn't have been down there in the first place. So if 35% is an artificial point in time against which to judge the move in the well, stock. I mean, that being said, Karen... Um, Are so, you calling her Karen? No, no, well, no, 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 no. Uh, but that being said, Karen. you know, you know, the stock. This is a compliment. I know. You know, you know, into that, compliment. into that Q2 print, right? So this is over the summer. The stock was trading a new 52-week high, and and it gap lowered. Do you remember that? And then it went down almost 30 percent right up until it just reported that Q3 number and gave that guidance. And so it was down 30 percent. Now it's up 30 percent. I mean, to me, I think. To your point, if you're long it, you look to do something to kind of like take in some premium, that sort of thing. Playing for a breakout here does not seem like a great do, in my opinion. Um, I think a lot of the good news is in the stock. I think if you look at the valuation, at Tim's point, it's trading about 30 times next year's expected EPS growth of about 30%, which is pretty good, right? Like the, that ad-supported tier and, and some of the stuff that they've done, um, you know, to get back the password sharing and everything like yeah, that. That's just all good for margins and that sort of thing. But one thing I'll just say is if you just look at the volatility of the stock over the last couple of quarters, look at all these big gaps. I mean, there are major shifts in their business. So right when you think you got it after one quarter, sometimes it goes the other way too. And when expectations are high, it's not usually a great time to be buying the stock. Uh, what's your best guess, Guy? Higher or lower from here? Leave that chart up for a second. And I'll say, I will answer your question, but I'll also say, I mean, this is a stock that went from you know $700 to $185 in pretty much a straight line a couple of years ago. So if you look, I mean, that July top was 485 we obviously pulled back. We're approaching that now. I mean, there's a chance that we could sort of levitate to that number. But, you know, given the magnitude of the move and given the fact that it's going from a high teens multiple to 30 times next year's numbers, my inclination is, you know, if it gets to 480, you sell it and look for a better entry point. All right. There's a lot more Fast Monday to come. Here's what's coming up next. Chock full of charts. 
The technicals are telling titillating tales about the market right now. But what kind of path are they charting now? Chartmaster Carter Worth stops by to do some detective work in three key areas of the market. But first, another major advertiser is stopping its spending on the platform formerly known as Twitter. What it could mean for the social media space. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to Fast Money. Apple, the latest company to pause all advertising on X, Elon Musk's social media company, according to Axios. The news comes after Musk agreed uh, with an anti-Semitic posting on the platform the other day. Earlier today, Lionsgate said it would suspend ads on X as well. IBM did the same yesterday. Will this trickle turn into a flood of advertisers taking a pause? And when does all of this start to impact Musk's bread and butter? Tesla, we discussed this briefly yesterday. It started to snowball today, so we Put it back in the show tonight. Uh, what do you think? We'll see. I mean, we've seen different times where there's been this pressure on advertisers on that platform. And, and clearly, it's been lean times uh, for that platform. I, I think it's a platform that, that will be, be brought back. But this is, these are major, major headwinds. Um, talking about the impact of what it does to Tesla, the stock, because of the impact for, for on, you know, uh, essentially on Elon because of Twitter is a is, you know, is an interesting conversation to have. Ultimately, I think Tesla is really, you know, we talk about valuations. This valuation makes zero sense to me at a time when there's a lot of pressure on EV. Uh, there's a lot of different pressures on their business globally. Obviously, all the conversations around China, they now need to build their own lithium, uh, you know, uh, production source, et cetera. So that that to me is the story. Look, the, the news in terms of of headlines right now is is certainly very provocative. Um, I don't think it's playing right now to the shock. You know, this kind of reminds me of, of Facebook when, you know, you saw a lot of ad pull back there. And, and I would expect other companies to follow suit and pull back pull back ad spend uh, attributed, attributed to X. With that said, I don't really think this has much to do with Tesla. And if there is a founder that's found that they have nine lives, it is likely Elon Musk. He has never been shy about saying controversial things. I don't expect that to change his posture going forward at all. And I really do think we need to separate Tesla versus X. It's a private company. Uh, that, you know, and, and moving to and trying to essentially extrapolate what that means for Tesla valuation, I think is a bit of a fool's error. It's the no, same it's not, guy. Well, hold on. It's not, it's, not, it's not the valuation. It, it's really the, the leadership. And, and so when you think about this to me, so I, I really disagree, and I'll tell you why. Um, look at the juxtaposition we just had. We just had a board of a private company push out Sam Altman for who knows what, okay? This is probably one of the worst things that you can do by by. by what he's been tweeting and, and where he is kind of getting in the mix. And just think about what's going on, not just in our society, but in all societies about what's going on right now. So this is a really important thing. He's decided to insert himself in a way that I think is obviously damaging 
one company right now, which is Twitter. Okay, if Twitter is only worth the debt that he is on the hook for, that $13 billion, and that could be if this business falls apart, then he has to go back and he probably has to sell Tesla shares, okay, at some point, because he's on the hook for that $13 billion in debt. And so I, I just think there's a lot of implications. And then you think of the people that he has offended through these tweets, they are probably the natural buyers of a Tesla, okay? Like when you think about who is buying EV uh, you know, cars in, in this environment right now. It's, it's the people who are probably kind of offended by his posture on Twitter and stuff. So I think they are very much connected. And I also think that there's going to be an increasing um, call for some sort of sanction or censure or something of him. He was, remember, the chairman of the board. He got knocked off of that for the SEC stuff, for the stuff with Twitter. Sooner or later, I mean, he just can't keep doing this sort of stuff. It's just not how it works. You sell, talk about nine lives, but sooner or later, man, you know, something's got to give. Yeah. Guy, what's your take at this point? Well, it's clearly, I mean, I think we would all agree it's certainly not a positive thing for Tesla, regardless of, you know, your stance. It's not a good thing. And, you know, he sells things that people want to buy. And if there is a groundswell of negativity around him and his products, I mean, clearly that's not good. To Tim's point, at a company that it's very difficult to justify their valuation. And listen, I know we get excited the stock went from 100 to 300. And that's what a lot of people are focused on. But if you go back and look, the high the stock made, I think, was J December of 21 or January of 22. It's down approximately 40% since then. That's really important to keep in mind in a broader market that's done quite well over that period of time. So as much as people want to say Tesla is this great, impervious to all things stock, quite frankly, it has not traded particularly well for the last couple of years. It hasn't. It hasn't. In the past two days... I mean, if I had told you that the CEO of a publicly traded company would roundly be considered an anti-Semite and the stock is down what, 4% total, 4.5% over, over the course of that period, that's, that's not, I mean, so, it shows that it is a little bit impervious for whatever reason, right or wrong. Because the people who buy the stock are not the people who buy the car. I mean, that's a very different thing. I mean, to me, this is a cult story and he is a cult leader of that you know, of that group. So you tell me what happens if he is replaced from this company for any reason. There, there's a massive premium related to Elon Musk right now in this stock. I mean, that is very clear to me. So if he had to, like, take a breather, go on the beach for a couple months or something, what do you think happens to this stock? Do you think it rallies? Right. Um, we have some breaking news here. Uh to interrupt this conversation. The Wall Street Journal is reporting that Jim Chanos is going to be shutting down his hedge fund and returning that capital to investors. The hedge fund right now has a, under $200 million uh, under management. That is down from $6 billion at its peak in 2008. Again, Jim Chanos, Kinnikos, uh, shutting down its hedge fund, according to the Wall Street Journal, noted short seller who we've had on this network many, many times, had on this show. Um, Smart guy. Tesla, short bet on Tesla. Um, coming up, we are counting down to NVIDIA earnings. The chipmaker is up more than 200% this year. But will this report make or break its epic run? We'll debate that. Plus, this high flyer has been on a tear in recent weeks. Could it be telling an even bigger story about the market? The Chartmaster will stop by to take a peek at the technicals next. More Fast Money in two. Missed a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money podcast. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks closing out their third straight week of gains in the green today. The Dow, S&P, and Nasdaq all finishing up more than 2% on the week, with the Nasdaq now up nearly 10% this month. 
Meantime, the private credit industry swelling to $1.6 trillion in 2023 as more companies turn to private markets to access funding. Still, our next guest says small and medium companies are largely missing from this equation. Damien Duin is the founder and CEO of Lafayette Square. The firm lends to middle market businesses. Damien, welcome to the show. Great to have you with us. Thank you. This is a great business to be in right now. You're walking me through the economics, um, and you're lending, what, at 13%? That's, that's what we reported in our 10Q last mm-hmm. week. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. Because of the Fed moving so far so fast, uh, because of inflation and where we are with liquidity in the capital markets, you can get five, six, seven hundred spreads on good companies right now. Um, but I would, I would be cautious. You know, there's no free money. And what matters is the return per unit of risk. So where are we on leverage, coverage, loan to value? Where are we on the actual quality of the underwriting and due diligence? Uh, Where are we on the concentration and crowding effect that we're seeing, particularly for the bigger borrowers Mm -hmm. who are relying on the same handful of firms to lend them money? Um, I, I worry about the correlation. So I like betting on working class people I like betting on all 50 states. The data shows today, and this is jarring, half of private credit goes to just five states. Really? Correct. So if you're not in California, Texas, Florida, New York, Illinois, are you getting your fair share of access to private credit? Is your cost of capital reflective of the quality of your business, its earnings, its debt capacity? Or is this really a a conversation about being in the right place and having you know, access to the in crowd. The small to medium sized businesses, though, do you feel like they're risk? I mean, it, it, it seems like they would be riskier inherently in this kind of environment, paying 13% on a loan. So that is the stereotype. The data tells you something else. So, first things first, the addressable market we're talking about is 240,000 companies with revenue of $10 million to a billion dollars. So that, that's a lot of companies. But guess what? There are 30 million the companies with less than $10 million in revenue. And when you look at the audited financials of these companies, they don't have access to the banks, because regional banks obviously are not at the table. And the private credit lenders are focused on the largest of the lot. So I'm talking two, 300 million EBITDA as the cutoff for where a lot of the big private credit firms want to lend today. So it's, it's a tale of you know, sort of two, two markets. Um, and 50-plus million Americans are employed by these small, medium-sized businesses controlled by families that are doing the right thing, and they tend to be conservatively levered. They, they have a lot more equity than debt. Damien, that's where I was going to go. If you think about small, medium businesses, they're huge employers here in the U.S. You just mentioned yes. 50 million here. So if some of these um, co- you know, companies that don't have access to the private credit markets, I mean, what does that mean for unemployment? We're starting to see it tick back up towards 4%. Are you getting any data out of some of the just kind of the trends that you're seeing in the lending markets right now? Working class people are not getting the opportunities they need. You have, on the one hand, record low unemployment. On the other hand, you recognize working class people are living check to check and their social mobility is flat to down. So this is a very scary situation. The employee benefits being delivered by all of these companies do not meet the moment. All the data tells us, particularly working class people, are under-enrolled in company-offered retirement benefits and health care benefits. 
And so if you pause as a business owner and stratify the, the wages of your employee base from the highest paid to the lowest, and just have a cutoff at that 80th percentile, you recognize right away your bottom 80th percent aren't even enrolled in the company benefits to the degree that your top 20 are. How do we fix that? Uh, then you got to deal with wages. And in this environment, it feels like the 70s to me, uh, what people are being paid is not enough. We're seeing it in credit card data, auto loan data. We're seeing it in home equity loans. Uh, this is a very fraught, scary time for working class people. And I think the government and the capital markets need to get on the same page. Today, they're not on the same page. Damien, uh, first of all, another great Hoya on the desk of Fast Money, by the way. So, um, and, and congrats to Lafayette Square because your ambition is you know, also doing well by doing good. And, and, but give us a peek into private credit overall because this has been sexy. This has been euphoric in terms of money going into private lending. And some of the big boys uh, that are out there have seen massive runs up. Are, are we seeing, I mean, are there cracks there, though? Because, I mean, in other words, at some point you talked about covenants and where, um, you know, in many cases in the private sphere, um, you see levered companies that, frankly, had no covenants that allowed them to get to four to six times leverage. That's Talk right. about that. That's right. So uh, the, the big crack in the business that doesn't get a lot of attention is with the liabilities. It has become far more expensive and far more complicated to get financing for this strategy. So in the simplest form, you raise equity, you raise leverage, and then you provide that capital to worthy businesses. Raising the equity has worked mainly from retail to a lesser extent, you've seen insurance pivot into this, yep. but endowments and foundations and pension funds have been a little bit more conservative. They have not flooded in the way those first two groups have. Then the leverage. Well, guess what? All the big banks have pulled back. The CLO business is not what it was. And so access to financing for private credit managers has become complicated. And this is why Washington DC matters yet again. The Small Business Administration is a reliable source of low-cost, long-duration funding to support small business job creation. But note, it's small business. Yep. SBA is not here to support 300 million EBITDA companies in a, a single sector, right? Yep. So we're going to have to have um, the, the private markets, the capital markets get on the same page as the government, and we need to have collaboration in order to get the capital flowing and to maintain the jobs, to get wages up and, and benefits addressed. That is the package. Damien, thank you so much for coming by. Yeah. Hope you come by again soon. Thank you Damien so much. Damien Duane Lafayette. Uh, Guy? I love him. I mean, I wish I was there. I've known, <laughs> we worked together at Goldman Sachs. He's obviously a Hoya, as Tim mentioned. He's younger than I am, he's younger than Tim is, but he does extraordinary work, and I will tell you, I've met a lot of extraordinary people over the years. I put him at the top of the list, and he knows this because I've said it to him many, many times. So it's great to have him and his voice on our show. Thank you, Guy. Good to have you. Thank you. Thank you, Damien. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm fully in support of, of finding a way to flow, to flow capital to those smaller SMBs. As you said, the concentration in terms of 200 to 300 million EBITDA, the, these, are the, these are the behemoths of the, of the private world. So, you know, a process of actually finding smaller owner-operated and owner-owned privately held companies, that's the lifeblood of this, of this American economy. And so I'm all for uh, 100% in support of finding ways to flow capital. Where jobs are created. Yeah. It's Main Street. No, it, it is. And Lafayette Square's partnered with some of the big corporates out there and helping to land into those, uh, the restaurant industry, for example. It, it's, it's an exciting time for them. 
Coming up, it's a retail revolution. Shares of Gap and Macy's seeing their best weeks in years. But do the moves change the outlook for these beaten down names? We'll dive into the charts to find out. And later, it's a short but busy week of earnings ahead with NVIDIA headlining the reports. Will their results be all gravy? We'll gobble up the trade ahead. More Fast Money in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. On this night of 1,000 charts, we are keeping the technical takes going. We couldn't do it without bringing our, in our chart master. Carter Braxtonworth of Worth Charting is here to hit the big movers from the week. Carter, there were so many, particularly in retail. Ross stores, yes, Gap, you- Macy's all surging, right? A bonanza. Uh, and let's get right to it. Three retail charts. Um, there's so many ways to interpret uh, each, but Macy's, of course. Uh, now, is the headline that it was up 32% for the week? Yeah. Or is the better headline? Before this week, it was down 85% from its all-time high of 73. And now it's down only 80. This stock was $73. It's 14. This is a gift if you're long. Get out. Um, but let's look at Ross. And of course, this is a real business. This is $45 billion in market cap. Macy's is three. Ross, just a textbook example of what a breakout is. Good relative strength. Um, bullish price volume correlation. I think this goes plenty higher. Uh, closed at 128. I played for almost 135. Uh, and then finally, Gap. More akin. Had a 30% move, almost 32, identical to Macy's. But whereas the Macy's move is impetuous, impulsive, rash, this is developmental. This bottomed in May. Um, and so I think it has all the elements of a proper bottom versus a knee jerk. Uh, and I would be on the long side here. We should, I mean, we have to do our jobs here, Carter. I mean, you did say to sell Macy's ahead of earnings. And so, you know, to those sell who more. followed your advice, they missed that big move higher that you now say sell to more. fade. Yeah, sell th- now. This, is, this is not, this is, exact. I mean, I would sell more. I would get more short. All right. Um, let's get the regionals here. The KRE was up 9% this week. It closed above the 200-day moving average for the first time since February. So what do you think of it, Carter? Yeah, so uh, it's an important development. If you were to look just at the gain on the week, regional banks were up 9.3. That's um, almost 50% more than the big banks, right? So the money center banks, Bank America, Wells Fargo, City, um, the KRE up nine versus seven, and financials as a sector up three. But here's the thing. The regional banks, all of them in the KRE, 140 stocks, it adds up to about 375 billion. JP Morgan itself is 441. So the question is, does it matter? It's not a lot of market cap, but it matters because the action is very developmental, and this was the most impaired area of the entire equity complex. Uh, I think you want to be long here. Wow. Okay. Carter, thank you. Carter Braxton Worth of Worth Charting. You agree? I think I think the price action in banks this week was extraordinary, especially when you consider getting back above key levels. Again, the, the carry is now above the 200 for the first time since you know going into SVB, uh, Bank of America, Citibank. Um, it, it, are, are the warts still there? The same problems that existed before that CPI number? Yeah. I do think, though, the relief on some of the regional banks in, in terms of the credit dynamics of what the perception is and everything we talked about in the first part of the show, our charts are reasons why the banks probably have some room to rally here. And again, had been so underperformed. I think sentiment was so poor. Um, I think you stay there. Guy? I look at Gap, and last night I thought it'd stop at 15, which was the high we saw over the summer. But now you say, okay, it's overshot. There were four analysts that made comments today. Uh, Two of them raised their price target to 17. Two of them raised it to 18. So obviously here we are right now. But the 50% sort of retracement of that sort of $36 high we saw a couple years ago in the $8 low, I mean, maybe it overshoots to 22. I mean, I don't think the fundamentals support it, but 
momentum in this market is extraordinarily powerful. So that's your overshoot to the upside. Coming up, NVIDIA's notable year. Can the record run continue? The AI darling is set to report earnings on Tuesday. We'll dig into what is ahead for this big tech name. Next, stick around. More Fast Money in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. All eyes on NVIDIA ahead of its earnings report in a shortened holiday week. The chip giant has been on a tear this year, soaring more than 200 percent year to date. It leads both the S&P and Nasdaq 100 by a long shot. Um, so what should we expect on Tuesday? Bonwin, what do you think? I expect another strong quarter, but I, I will say this run-up into earnings does give me some concern. If you refer back to last quarter when they when they announced it was a massive run-up, and then they literally gave up all of those gains. So I think I'd feel a little bit better if there was a bit of profit-taking going in, but being that there seems to be exuberance, dare I say a rational exuberance, I'm inclined to pause and then add on a pullback. I think there are a lot of people that still feel like they don't have the exposure they want in the AI world. I, I don't, you know, chasing NVIDIA here to me is really tough to do. Uh, I will also point out, though, that semiconductors as a group closed at all-time highs today, um, 20% in the last 12 sessions, and, and, you know, for a group that was already kind of frothy. So um, I, I think this is where Bonoan was, which is that, you know, you've had a big, big move into these numbers. Um, but, I, I, you know, we know those numbers are going to be good. The question is how good. The analyst community really seems to think that if there is any sort of miss or if they don't come in extremely strong, it'll all be because of supply constraints, not the demand issue. And they're willing to overlook it. So there's sort of like that dynamic on Wall Street. I don't know if it's going to play out, um, but that seems to be the thinking in the research reports I've read so far. And listen, you have a scenario right here, and these guys just said it. Okay, there's 63 analysts who cover the stock, 60 of them rated a buy, three of them a hold. So it's not just analysts who are on one side of this. is investors. They've just taken it from $400 to $500. And listen, people are going to start focused on next year, you know, and what that valuation looks like here. And and again, maybe at 28 times expected to grow mm-hmm. earnings greater than that. Maybe you're starting to see it. And we've had lots of very smart people come on the show all year long and say it looks expensive now, but OK, I just think that the expectations right now, very high, um, 7% implied move in either direction. Just do the math on a trillion dollar stock. Up next, final trades. I want to give you an update here on the Jim Chanos headlines we brought you earlier that he is uh, shutting his fund down. It manages $200 million, down from $6 billion in 2008. The legendary short seller telling our Scott Wapner that he is only giving back external capital and not shutting down the firm. It will now be a family office and advisory business. He just won't be running an LP or an offshore fund. And uh, we got to have another update on another front on X. Uh, more companies pausing advertising on X. New York Times now reporting that Disney is joining Apple and Lionsgate in suspending ads. Uh, time for the final trailer. Let's go around the horn. Guy. Marathon Petroleum, Mel. Tim. Coca-Cola. Vimes are good. Strengthen some of the numbers in the margins. Bonwin with your turtleneck. Oh. <laughs> XRT. It's had a remarkable run, but I'm not inclined to chase it. Nobody said anything. This whole entire show I was about gonna, this what can you, turtleneck what could you that say? Bonwin is... Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, if you wanted to say, nice fit, okay? Um, that's what the kids say. Thank you. Um, Tim's Pfizer, starting to look interesting. The more you read about GLP-1s and the orals. Only Bonwin could pull it off, by the yeah, way. He did. He did. <laughs> Thanks for watching Fast. Have a great weekend. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. 
All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.